Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. I'm joined this week as my guest by Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio Trust, an interesting vehicle that only invests in other investment trusts. Peter has been managing the trust since 2008 when it was launched and has been operating in the investment trust world for much longer than that. Before we get on to that, however, a quick recap on what's happened to the markets. I'm recording this unusually on a Thursday morning rather than on a Friday afternoon because of the impending Christmas holiday. And it's been a pretty quiet start to the week for both equities, which have basically flatlined, and bond deals have also picked up a little bit at the long end, but essentially not moved very much so far this week. Likewise, currencies fairly flat. Uh, some increase in commodities, oil price up and the gold price up by a couple of percentage, but essentially a fairly quiet week. In terms of investment trusts, well, the average discount on investment trust has come in a little bit this week. It's declined to just around 13.5% as I'm talking, but the sector is still down just shy of 20% year to date. It has been one of the worst years for the investment trust index for some time. Though, interestingly, as I uh, comment in my notes this week for the Moneymakers Circle, uh, if you actually look not just at uh, the performance of investment trusts on a market capitalization weighted basis, but uh, on a numerical basis, in other words, just taking the arithmetical average of performance, it's nothing like as bad as the index would suggest. That being dominated by some of the larger trusts, uh, such as Scottish Mortgage, which have a very large market capitalization and therefore dominate the performance of the investment trust index. We've had a number of interesting results, though nothing like the quantity that we've seen in the previous two weeks. We've seen annual results from the following investment trusts as of today. Uh, Majedi Investment Trust, ticker MAJE, which recently changed its uh, manager after disappointing performance, was down 18.2% in the year against a 4% decline in its benchmark, and is trading on a, on a wide discount of around uh, 19 percent and has adopted a new um, target return of uh, CPI plus four percent over a five-year rolling period. Interesting to see whether that turns out to be a a sensible move given the likely movement of inflation over the next few years. We've also had positive results from JP Morgan Indian whose NAV over its reporting period was up by 6.3 percent in sterling terms That was a little bit behind the Indian market index of 8.8%. Nevertheless, a rare positive return in in equity investment trusts. And then we also heard from ECOFIN Global Utilities and Infrastructure Trust, ticker EGL, which trades around par. That's produced a NAV gain of 12.5% against its benchmark of 12.7%. So another good gain there in that specialist infrastructure trust. Aberdeen Diversified income and growth also reduced annual results, showing a 1.2% gain in NAV total return against a decline of 4% in its benchmark. But this trust has had a tricky period since it was taken on by Aberdeen in 2017. It has a mixed portfolio, public and private assets, but has been trading at a very wide discount, again approaching 20%. So it still needs to do quite a lot of work to get back into favour with uh, shareholders has a market cap of around 290 million ticker adig 
still a positive result over that period. And then we've also heard annual results from Cenivari Toro, a euro-denominated debt trust, which produced a return of minus 5% and trades on a big discount of about 20%, but still not yet in managed wind-down like some of its peer group, no doubt hoping to recover from that last negative return. And we've had interim results as well from Artemis Alpha, ticker ATS, NAV total return down 13.4% in the six months to end of October against a benchmark return of 12.2%. We heard from Mygo Opportunities Trust, the trust managed by Nick Greenwood, who was on the podcast last week and uh, talked about his portfolio of off-the-beaten-track investment trusts. Its uh, interim results showed a uh, NAV total return to kind of 9.9%, which is an underperformance of the three benchmarks it looks at. That's a cash plus 2% benchmark, the FTSE All Share Index and the MSCI World Index, are both down slightly less. Nick Greenwood talked about the fact that his underlying discount across his portfolio had gone out to 28%, the highest he can remember for a long time. And therefore, that was a factor in the uh, relatively disappointing performance over that period. Uh, we've also heard from interims from Atlantis Japan Growth, the ticker AJGF, which returned uh, a negative 6.7% in sterling terms against a 1.8% benchmark total return over the six months to the end of October. Uh, That one trades on a wide discount as well, which went out to as much as 16% during the reporting period. There's also been quite a lot of corporate news. We've uh, heard from the two troubled social housing trusts, Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH, and Triple Point Social Housing. Both reported the news that... uh, a second one of their tenants, a housing association called MySpace, has been deemed to be non-compliant by the housing association regulator. This being one of the issues that surrounded social housing trusts since the short seller attack on Civitas Social Housing back in uh, 2021. I'll talk about that with Peter Hewitt, uh, who is an investor in that trust, shortly. Some significant news this week from the debt sector, where we've heard stories of contrasting fortunes. We've heard from a VPC Specialist Lending, ticker VSL, where the board is proposing a managed wind-down of the trust. It had proposed an exit opportunity for shareholders up to 25% of the share capital. But after consultation with shareholders, it's decided that uh, that is no longer its preferred option. And having discussed it with its main shareholders, it is the board is now proposing a managed wind-down, uh, which will see the trust disappear in due course. Uh, The discount there has been particularly persistent for a long time. Uh, We also heard from MB Global Monthly Income, another debt trust, which is also now proposing to go into managed wind-down. That's ticker NBMI, though the board there warns that it could take up to 24 months to sell some of its more illiquid assets. Uh, This has been an interesting trust which uh, raised a lot of money when it first came to market, a succession of share issues, but... uh, subsequently has uh, rather remarkably returned more than £500 million by way of buybacks and other mechanisms to its shareholders, That's, uh, which I think is the, the largest quantum of buybacks that we've ever seen from an investment trust. But despite that, it continues to trade at a discount and the board has decided enough is enough, not enough demand to keep that one in existence. Uh, meanwhile, though, in other part of the debt investment trust sector, we've heard from 24 Income which set a new dividend target of 7p, which represents a dividend yield of around 7% perspectively. And this trust has been trading on a premium 
so in a very different situation to the two I've just mentioned, and uh, makes a lot of positive noises about the outlook. It just reported its uh, interim results. For more details about all these uh, announcements and every other announcement made by Investment Trust this week, yeah, you can, of course, refer to the uh, Moneymakers website, where for Moneymakers Circle subscribers, we summarise all the Investment Trust news of the week with links to the announcements themselves so that you can find the detail yourself very easily. There you'll also find all our other normal features, including our latest Investment Trust profile, which this week features... JLEN Environmental. Uh, you'll also find some notes from me, as I said, about the markets and our regular summary of the main share price, NAV and discount movements uh, over the course of the past week and the past year, as well as a couple of outside contributions. So this week, I was delighted to catch up with Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio, an interesting investment trust that has uh, two share classes, one growth and one income, uh, which he has managed since 2008. In June this year, the name of the trust changed from uh, BMO Global Managed Portfolio to CT Global Managed Portfolio, following the acquisition by Columbia Threadneedle of BMO's European Fund business. So there it is. It has two share classes here, one that is a growth portfolio and the other which is an income portfolio. And uh, shareholders can switch from one to the other uh, once a year. It's a very interesting looking vehicle. And Peter's been uh, managing or involved in the Austin Trust business for many years. Going back a long way, he has almost as much grey hair as I do, but not quite. So Peter, lots to talk about this week. We're going to review the week and we're going to talk about what you've been doing in your investment trust. It doesn't really need me to say that this has been quite a difficult year for the investment trust sector. If you look at the investment trust index, the one that is composed of investment trusts in the FTSE All Share Index, that is down nigh on 20% this year. Uh, but that actually doesn't give an entirely accurate picture of what's been going on, because obviously that includes some of the very big investment trusts, which have very large market capitalizations, and they are bigger weights in the index than the uh, number of other trusts, and that drags down the index performance. Uh, but even so, it's been a tough year for investment trusts generally, has it not, in which we've seen NAV declines across uh, much of the sector compounded by widening discounts. So uh, how's it been for you this year, Peter? I know we talked about three months ago. Are you enjoying this year? Um, Jonathan, it's been not a great year for investment trusts generally or managed portfolio trusts in particular. Um, you know, the, the sector, as you said, is down give or take 20%. The FTSE 100 index is actually up 2%. So that's really quite sizable underperformance. Now, you should know, that actually for many years before that, for most of the last decade, investment companies have outperformed mainstream UK equity indices. But this year there was a major correction. But actually the FTSE 100 index is up two. The 250 index is also down about 20. And the small cap index is down over 20, 21, 22. So by number, UK stocks have all underperformed or fallen in value by approximately 20%. Some a lot more, some a bit less. What's kept the FTSE index up has been that small cadre of mega cap companies, the oil companies, 
pharmaceuticals, tobaccos, miners, maybe about 20 of them, which are huge companies. And they've either really done quite well in the case of the oil companies, tobaccos too, actually. And that's meant that the FTSE 100 index appears to be outperforming other global indices. And nobody, <laughs> hardly any equity fund managers are outperforming it because of it's very difficult to only have a few stocks and be overweight in those particular stocks. Now, I should say that, again, for most of the past decade and longer, you don't outperform the UK index by just investing in the biggest companies in FTSE. You look for the better growth companies, smaller companies, and that's a way of outperforming and pretty solidly too for a number of years, but not this past year. So that's what's made it difficult. You mentioned discounts. The average discount started off at 2% at the beginning of January this year. It's now about 14 and that's an average. So yes, you can find trusts that are less than 14, but you can also find a lot more private equity, property, for example, where discounts can be 30, 40, 50%, huge discounts offering apparently good value. So that average discount of 14 itself, you need to have a, have a bit of a look at, but it does give you a flavor. It's been very difficult for trusts. Almost all have been underperforming their benchmark indices, whether that's in Europe, Asia, America, UK. And so you kind of think, well, is this going to go on into 2023 or where are we now? And I think that's the interesting point for discussion. I mean, it's fair to make the point, of course, that we know that investment trusts have been going since 1868 was the first one in the foreign and colonial. And they've been through quite a lot of bad years. Let's put it that way. We had a lot of bad markets and uh, they have tended to underperform during bear markets for reasons that I think are quite well understood. The gearing and so on is a factor in some cases and the discount widening is another factor. So I guess what we have to say is that this comes with the territory, if you like. You have to put up with this uh, greater volatility in order to get the superior longer term returns that we all believe is uh, why we should be investing in investment trusts. Uh, looking back over other bear markets, how does this one compare to others that you've been through uh, briefly, Peter? Well, it's been painful. It's probably been a bit surprising. But I think with hindsight, a, a year ago, 18 months ago, valuations of many equity markets, probably not the UK actually, but many overseas ones, particularly America, was too high. And discounts in investment companies to have an average discount of just 2% a year ago told you that probably a third to a half of trusts were actually trading at premiums. And that kind of is perhaps now with hindsight, a good indicator that something was going to change because in most cases, you look for trusts to offer you a level of discount and certainly that wasn't evident a year ago. I think the other thing to say, you mentioned gearing. I mean, certainly moving out of discounts is not helpful, albeit it does offer quite interesting value just now. We can come on to chat about that. But gearing, particularly amongst equity trusts, but even in other areas, property trusts would be one, has been certainly a double-edged sword this year. Equity trusts are not that highly geared. In fact, very modestly geared presently. And it's arguable whether you'd want gearing or not. I think going into 2023 and equity trust, actually, I, I would quite like them to have a bit of gearing because I suspect we're towards the bottom. But in the likes of a property trust, 
with what went on with bond yields and interest rates in September, if they've not had all the debt fixed, suddenly their interest costs are going up quite substantially and that can eat into returns. So you have to have, you know, an eye to what's the balance sheet of the trust. Is it geared? And if it is geared, what's the nature of that gearing, the duration, the cost? And all of these things you can get if you look at the annual report or, you know, websites of trusts will give you a pretty decent steer on that. But that's been an element of underperformance too. Let's quickly then talk also about some style factors. It's something we talk about investment style, growth or value, large cap versus small cap. You mentioned the large cap versus small cap divergence. Uh, but there's also been uh, quite a lot of debate around this issue of growth and value. And you're well placed to tell us about this, Peter, because you have two share classes, one that looks to gain, make capital gains in the growth portfolio, and the other one which looks to attain an income in the income portfolio. And I, looking up this morning, the yield on your uh, on the income part is around 5.5%, according to uh, the IIC numbers anyway. And the growth portfolio, of course, doesn't pay a dividend. So you're looking for capital gains there. And you transfer the income from one to the other. Quite clever stuff. So what are your thoughts about growth against income? Obviously, this year, so far, the growth portfolio has underperformed the income portfolio. But tell us whether you think there is a, a lot of people say there's a change in style where we are moving from a growth era to a, a value era, if you like, of which uh, dividend paying trusts apart. What are your thoughts on that uh, particular issue? Well, yes, and, and certainly 2022 will go down as a value or those trusts that employ the value style will have done better, although in many cases, quite a few of them have not outperformed as well because it's been value in a specific area of the, the equity markets done well. In other words, the very biggest companies. And we've, we've referred to that. As to growth, I don't think growth's going to outperform in the first few months of next year. I do think such has been the extent of the fall in asset values and trust share prices, I think you're probably towards the bottom there. And again, I know I've, I've said this, you said this, others have said this, if you genuinely have a medium to long term perspective, three to five years, say, you know, starting a holding in a more growth orientated trust is probably a good idea now, because they are off offering they're probably at a decent discount. And I think the potential for good returns is there, but I don't see it happening in the immediate, in the next few weeks, maybe the next quarter or two. But as inflation and interest rates peak out and rates start coming down, you will start to see more growth orientated trusts doing slightly better in the market. And I think the more we go through next year and into actually the year after that, I think you could find growth certainly doing as well as value and possibly better in some respect. So don't give up on it. It's been difficult. It may continue to be in the short term, but I think the sort of the seeds of recovery are there. I mean, I guess stating the obvious, a lot depends what happens next year to interest rates in particular and inflation. There is this uh, battle going on with the central banks trying to bring inflation down. 
and the market, the implied view in the markets for what it's worth, and personally, I never think it is worth that much, is that um, they're going to succeed in getting inflation down. But whether that's because we go into a bad recession, which actually forces uh, prices down that way, or whether it's just the effect of their tightening policy, uh, we don't know yet. And there's random factors like Ukraine, of course, out there as well. We don't know whether that war is going to carry on. And if so, what the impact on the energy markets will continue to be. So um, it's a mug's game to predict recessions. But um, there is an argument that next year could be quite tough as well. We may not have seen the bottom yet. Would you, uh, but you're not persuaded of that? Well, I think I am actually quite nervous, I think, about the early part of the year, because I think we've seen the derating in markets, the fall in markets due to rising inflation and rising interest rates. And that's been apparent in the 2022 numbers. The second leg of that and you mentioned recession, and we are going to go into a recession here in the UK, Europe, America, pretty much everywhere. And the question is the duration and severity. And I think the one thing that makes me slightly concerned about markets in the very short term, really for Q1, would be what we've not really seen yet are widespread downgrades to profits and earnings estimates from companies. So, for example, you see the UK market is on whatever it's on, PE of 10 or something or 9. And you'd immediately say, gosh, that's very attractive value. And it is. But what you do know is you're not going to get the E part, the earnings, the profits is not going to grow next year. And they may in one or two sectors, but across the board, it's going to be a down year. And so is it going to be a modest down year or a severe down year so that you might actually have a PE of 10 now, but who knows, that might be a PE of 13 or 14 if profits and earnings were to fall by 30% or 40%. And I think that's what will get bottomed out in results in the early part of really the first half of next year. I think once you get that and companies have missed their profits, have come out with a very cautious statement and analysts have downgraded. And the trouble is analysts are always too optimistic. They're still going, in, particularly in America, for actually growth in earnings per share next year. But once you get that coming down to where it should be, I think you've then got the seeds of recovery. And that recovery could actually be quite substantial. It wouldn't surprise me if a year from now, we were actually looking at positive returns for the UK equity market. But you may have had a fall in the first quarter, but you could see a recovery in the second half of the year, as by then inflation is probably down at 5 or 6%, interest rates probably have peaked out and the Bank of England is guiding people lower. And actually, you know, profits and earnings for the following year look like they may be stable or possibly improving. And that's the sort of situation where you can actually have quite a good equity market. We are not there yet, but trying to time it is extremely difficult. And so I would, I would just say it's probably too late to sell now. Hold on with a view to possibly buying again later in the year. You mentioned the average discount of being 14%. So obviously some a lot wider, some, some narrower than that. A number of trusts have buyback policies, which, uh, they are either diligently pursuing or sometimes not so diligently pursuing. At some point, we'll get almost certainly the double whammy, which is what we all look for, which is the rising NAV again and uh, accompanied by discounts narrowing. Uh, but that won't happen until I think you can see the kind of uh, outcome that you're, you've been talking about. 
Uh, well, let's talk about the investment trust sector in a bit more detail. We'll come on to what's in your portfolio in a moment and things you've been doing. But let's just talk about some of the news this week, because there's some interesting sort of themes, I think, in there. So one I was going to pick out was uh, we've heard from a couple of investment trusts, both in the debt sector, as it happens. One is VPC Speciality Lending, which has announced that it's going to go into managed wind down. In other words, they're going to sort of gradually go out of business in, a, in an orderly fashion because they're consulted with shareholders who don't like the fact it's been trading at such a big discount for so long. That's one. We've also heard from NB Global Monthly Income. That's another, another debt trust, which is also going to be going into managed wind down. So there's two in the debt sector. So this is all sort of part of the Darwinian process we see in the investment trust uh, sector, where unlike in the open-ended sector, you know, boards do, uh, if trusts aren't performing as expected or uh, trading at a, at a discount, they do uh, take steps to wind them up. Would you regard that as a healthy uh, development? The answer is yes, it probably is. Certainly with sort of credit and debt funds, um, I think as you head into a recession, you could come a cropper. You're just n- never quite sure where bad loans or debts will suddenly appear. I just took the view that really I'll let somebody else deal with that. They may offer super value. And I understand shareholders, if they're at a big discount, want to try and get back their asset value. But, and I also think it's they're quite specialist. And I'm not sure for the retail shareholder, one of the key reasons would be the dividend income. And dividend income might look attractive um, just now, but I think there is a risk if you do get a recession that's maybe a bit more severe than we currently anticipate, you might get bad debts and then suddenly the income's not there. So I think you're right, it's the Darwinian process. And you could see a bit more of that happening over the ensuing weeks and months as trusts not really mainstream trusts, in subsectors like debt and credit, you kind of feel, no, I think I'll be coming out of that. And shareholders, if they're at big discounts, could club together and try and wind the thing up. Yes, I mean, there have been a number of other debt trusts which already disappeared in the past two or three years. Axiom European would be one that I recall talking to a few years ago, and uh, they've given up the the struggle, if you like, because it just hasn't gained enough acceptance to make them viable longer term. Have you ever invested in a debt investment trust, Peter? And if, if not, why not? I mean, you're interested in income, so... You- I've currently got one, which is called Biopharma Credit. I'm calling it by its um, acronym, BPCR, Biopharma Credit. It's a specialty lender. It lends to pharmaceutical companies who are in a different place from many other mainstream companies. And it's lent against defined streams of royalty income of particular products, drugs, which are already out there and selling in the marketplace. And that's actually done quite well. It's got quite a decent dividend yield and occasionally gives you a special dividend, which is very welcome. I did have one called GCP Asset Backed Income, which was a more UK trust. The Biofarm Credit is principally an American vehicle. Um, and GCPS, I think, um, has, has not really missed a beat, to be fair to it. It lends to a whole variety of different property-related and unusual types of loans that, that, that it does. And it's done quite well. But I just took the view, as we go into recession, you just never know where some of these are going to prove difficult if, for some reason, the loan goes wrong. And to boot, the fund manager left unexpectedly. So I just thought, right, I think that's enough here and sold that one. It could be okay, but it's already trading at quite a decent discount. 
And it's just something that's, I don't know, it doesn't feel the right place to be at the current time of the cycle. Well, that's the debt sector. It's interesting, though, that there's also another one reported this week, which was 24 income. It's interesting, they invest mainly in floating rate debt, which you think would be quite a good thing to be in if interest rates are rising. But they're targeting a 7p dividend and I think offering a yield of over 7%, which is either very good value or it's telling us that maybe there are going to be some problems, as you've said, in the portfolio. Though on the face of it, it looks like, uh, you know, they've got a very good uh, situation there. But let's move on and talk about some other trusts and some of the things that have been going on recently. Let's start off around the fringes, then we'll come back to your portfolio. Do you have any thoughts around the troubles that the uh, social housing trusts have been having? So Civitas Social Housing and Triple Point uh, Social Housing. Both of them had to come out this week and say that the Housing Association regulator has, again, put one of their tenants they share in common uh, on sort of watch, as it were, of being potentially uh, in trouble and not compliant. Uh, And of course, we know this sector has been a bit of a disaster. They're doing good things for the country in principle by uh, providing accommodation for the homeless and the, those who need care. But it's been a bit of a disaster area as far as those trusts are concerned, or both of them gone to big, big discounts. Do you have any thoughts about that? And uh, do you think that's a sort of healthy development for the investment trust sector? It, well, it is. Yes. I mean, I'm a holder of Civitas. It's about the smallest holding in my income portfolio, courtesy of share price performance. <laughs> yes. I've not sold any shares in it, though. And I am a holder of it. And to be very candid, probably I'd be more interested in buying shares in Civitas at the moment than coming out. And I mean, just so your listeners know, the share price is roughly 60. The asset value is 114. And they produced interim results recently, which were fine. And the asset value was roughly flat and they've increased their dividend. And the yield is kind of nine and a half region and growing, which is interesting. But there's a lot of controversial stuff about this social housing area. Civitas, and I know less about Triple Point, but I think them as well, they are not like home REIT, buying properties to put homeless people into. This is special support housing for people who have problems. So, for example, severe autistic people who are afflicted with disabilities like that. Each property needs significantly kitted out to deal with people with these problems. And also there's a lot of younger people there and they're going to be in these properties for a long time, decades, as long as they live. And so it's different and the rents they get are higher and are certainly growing. That yes, they do contract with housing associations who are kind of the people in the middle here, along with care providers. And some of the housing associations, they tend to be middle-sized ones Most are fine, but some of them, I think the balance sheets of the housing associations are not that robust. Sometimes neither is the governance, the financial management. Civitas do their best to help, and I think they have done. And one of the smaller housing associations, I think it was called MySpace, that accounted for just over 1% of the Civitas rental income has had problems And I think half a dozen of the properties, they haven't actually been able to get the rents recently. Now, I think it's worthwhile saying that there's no housing association ever gone bust. And normally either a larger one comes in to help it out or local authorities do, ultimately backed by the government, for reasons which are pretty obvious. You don't want these people being chucked out of properties because rents weren't being paid. 
I've always been very impressed with the Civitas management. Paul Bridges, who's the the main sort of chief operating officer, he used to run the second biggest housing association in the UK. He understands that sector intimately. And I think they generally do the right things. They're being as helpful as they can to housing associations who perhaps are feeling the strain at, at the moment. And their rental income has come through quite strongly. And they've now fixed all their debt, which is a, an area I think I mentioned earlier, a worry for property companies, floating rate debt, suddenly it eats into the apparent rental income that you're getting on, on the other side. And so I think, I mean, I don't see any immediate catalyst why Civitas is going to start performing in capital terms for, for their share price. But if they continue as they have done with their dividend and it's growing, I don't mind waiting. At 9.5% yield, that's a decent return. They had a short seller that attacked Civitas 18 months ago and they produced their reply to that. They tried to answer all the criticisms and I think in the main they did. They've had three sets of results since then and they've all been all right, come through fine. It's geared about 30, 32% loan to value. So it's not that extended. And I just think it's one we're going to have to wait and in time, if they keep producing half year after half year of figures in decent shape, it will recover. I'm not saying it's going back to asset value, but it could go back to a 20 discount and you get a heck of a return from the current share price. So I'm not a seller of Civitas presently. And if anything, I would be adding to it. Yes, it's unfortunate this latest thing with Home Re, which is, as you say, a different business model and a different area, different sector, housing the homeless rather than those with medical or other issues is unfortunate because right? it does sort of leaves a kind of general bad sort of miasma around the social housing sector. But do you think there's anything more that the the boards could do? I mean, Civitas, social housing, I mean, they they could be buying back more shares, I suppose. They have bought back some. Can they do that without uh, jeopardizing their business model? Well, they have got some cash and they have bought back some shares. Typically, share buybacks don't transform discounts. It's important they show willing, and I think they have done, but they don't want to completely use all their cash and having to start taking on additional debt simply to buy in shares. That's self-defeating. I think in the longer run, you know, the regulator for social housing has put a number of their housing associations, almost all the housing associations, to be honest with you, are on the watch list. Some of them have failed their tests for, you know, supposedly financial strength and prudence. None of them have missed rental income payments, I should say. A change in that would be helpful. Civitas have introduced a clause into a number of their agreements now with housing associations, which is very helpful and tries to address some of the regulator's concerns. I think it probably will do in time, but I don't think you're going to see, particularly with what's going on with home REIT, which is different. I don't think you're going to see a major change in the share price in the short term. Do I think 60p is an interesting level? I do. I don't see it going to 50 or 40 in a, in a hurry um, because I think it's quite well managed. But it's not really expanding because you need... You can't issue any more shares, obviously, with a decent <laughs> so, so, so I think you're getting the dividend return at the moment. But at 9.5%, that's not bad. And at some stage, unless it really is the wrong model and the thing goes bust, that's going to go up that share price and close that discount. I don't know when, though. As with all value-orientated vehicles, it takes a lot longer than you think for that 
opportunity yeah. to be crystallized. Well, that's a very good point. It does take a long time sometimes, yeah. On the subject of discounts and discount controls, I mentioned that earlier that, you know, some investor trusts, some boards have been very vigorous at enforcing their discount control policies where they have them. Only a minority do have discount control policies, it's fair to say. Um, but we served this week from one which has given up on its discount policy, which is uh, Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ticker ADIG. So it's been uh, in the Aberdeen stable since 2017 and it's changed its sort of strategy a couple of times. The board has been trying to find a good formula for this one uh, and not had much success so far. And they've decided to um, abandon their 5% discount control policy, uh, partly because the discount is out at around 19%. So it hasn't actually worked, as you say. But are you saying that actually in, in all cases that the discount control policies are, are not a good idea, share buybacks don't work in uh, bringing in discounts? Or does it depend on the market environment at the time you do it? I think it does. And I'm not saying it's it's overall a bad idea at all. I think it depends on which area that you know the trust is involved in. I mean, there's quite a number of trusts which have a zero discount policy. And if you can achieve that, it's definitely worthwhile doing. These are types of trusts that, you know, they buy in aggressively at a one or two discount and they also issue shares at a, at a premium as well. And I think you've got to have a strong share register. You've got a good manager. But if you declare that to the market and they see that happening and continuing to happen over a period of time, then the sort of neutral position for a market maker tends to be we'll have that share price around about asset value, give or take, because we know if there's sellers going to come on and there are no immediate buyers, natural buyers in the market, then the trust board and managers will buy in the shares. And if it's a reasonably liquid portfolio, principally of equities, you can probably do that. I don't know Aberdeen diversified income. I think it's got some illiquid investments. And obviously with a discount at 20%, you're not suddenly going to transform that overnight with buybacks. Even if you bought in massive quantities of shares, it just doesn't happen. But you can influence the discount and or premium rating that your share price has. And I mean, I actually have to say, the Managed Portfolio Trust, my own trust, our official policy is we buy in at a five discount and we issue at just over a one, one and a half premium. Now, in practice, I actually buy in a bit tighter than that. It's about a three discount and it's a relatively liquid portfolio. And, you know, if you look at the managed portfolio trust, I'm not just saying us, but others too, you'll find that we are trading at a one discount, a par, a two discount, a one premium, all round about there. Because the market makers know that if their line of stock comes in, I will buy in shares. Similarly, if there has been extra demand, and at the moment, I think there might be in one of our share lines, then I will issue shares to them at a one premium or just over a one premium. And once that gets ingrained and the market knows that that's the neutral position for your trust, then it's amazing. That's where the share price tends to gravitate to. And there's now quite a number of trusts where that's the case. But I don't think you could do that with a property trust. You couldn't do that with private equity. Aberdeen Diversified Income probably would struggle to, given the underlying... One of their problems is they have switched to a kind of private public. It's roughly 50-50, I think, to switch between private assets and uh, public assets. And that constrains what you can do, uh, as we've seen also with um, 
Well, Scottish Mortgage has been buying back shares, for example, but they have a similar sort of issue because there's a, a natural limit to which if you've got unlisted shares and so on, you can't dispose of them very quickly. And as you say, if you're in property or things like that, you certainly can't do that. That may be one of the issues they have, having switched to this kind of model. It does limit your ability to manage the discount. I was going to mention the fact that your trust does trade around power most of the time and you have established that credibility. That's why I'm particularly interested in your views on that. So um, taking into account also, uh, you know, the social housing trust, Civitas Social Housing, you mentioned, ticker CSH. So let's talk a little bit about your portfolios then, Peter. Let's start with the growth portfolio, which you say has had a pretty tough year. Have you been making a lot of changes in this portfolio? I mean, I'm looking down the top 10 holdings. That's all I can see at the moment. Your interims aren't out till January, I think, so we can't see what else is in there. You've still got HG Capital Trust, still the biggest position, I think. That's a private equity tech trust, growthy kind of vehicle. Yes. After that, it gets a bit more defensive looking down your top 10. I, I can't see a lot of out-and-out growth trusts there. Well, yes, HG Capital is the largest holding. Next is Fidelity Special Values and then Law Debenture and then Finsbury Growth and Income. And I've got some defense, BH Macro, Ruffer, Personal Assets, Capital Gearing are all in the top 10 and they've got there because they've actually performed. In other words, they've not gone down much and that's gravitated them into the top 10. But Jonathan, I've been doing quite a few visits to investment managers in recent weeks. The, the trust has got about 8% cash, which is well above what we normally have. That's not really for defensive reasons. It's because at some point, probably next year, I will go back into the market. But I have made one or two small additions recently. And to give you a flavour, I bought in the growth portfolio just a bit more of Henderson Smaller Companies, which has had a particularly poor year. The shares are down, I think, 35, 40%. It's got a good manager. It's mainly a mid-cap, UK mid-cap portfolio with a sort of growth bent to it. It's got all the wrong characteristics for the past year. But it's offering some interesting value. It's on a decent double-digit discount. And I think it's because I believe investment companies either specialist in or with a decent portion of their portfolio in UK medium-sized and smaller companies are looking quite interesting. And I think at some stage next year, and I don't know exactly when, but we will hit a peak of inflation and actually, inflation might move from current levels of 10 or 11 down to five or six quite quickly because a lot of that is due to things like energy costs and freight costs and things like that, which are all beginning to, to come off now quite sharply. So inflation could come down. And at that point, the Bank of England will have almost certainly stopped raising rates. And you might get some more sort of softer comments from them regarding the outlook for interest rates. And it's possible rates could even begin to start falling in the second half of next year. I'm not saying that's for sure, but that's exactly the time when mid and small cap companies who've had a bad year in share price terms will at that stage be having a difficult year in profits and earnings because we will have gone into recession. But the stock market looks ahead, say 12 months, and it will see better times. And I think then you could have quite sharp movements in those types of trusts. So in the income portfolio, I bought a bit more of mercantile. In the growth portfolio, Henderson Smaller Companies. And these are the types of trusts that I think could move quite quickly. And I also 
had a visit to another UK equity trust, which is quite interesting, got a decent holding, it called Aurora. And it's about 150, 200 million market cap run by Phoenix Asset Management. And this is quite a potentially volatile trust because it's only got 15 or 18 holdings. They do an extraordinary amount of due diligence on those holdings. Most of them are well-known names. Their biggest holding is Fraser's, which Sports Direct is the main profit driver within there, but they've also got flannels there, more upmarket chain. And they've got four other holdings, the two low-cost airlines, EasyJet and Ryanair, and two house builders, I think it's Barrett and Bellway. So you've got more than half the portfolio in those five companies. And if ever there was five companies that would be poised to do well as we come out of recession, these are the ones. So you think to yourself, well, actually, we're only just going into recession. And that's true, we are. But share prices look ahead. And it wouldn't surprise me if that trust had actually quite a good second half to next year. It trades roundabout par, small discount, and is an interesting one. I think it's a very interesting um, management approach they've got. Yes, it's, and, uh, it's distinctive and it's very concentrated, as you say, and not afraid to go into places where some other investors would, would fear to tread. I mean, not everybody is a fan of Mike Ashley, for example, but uh, Fraser's has done extraordinarily well over the years since uh, he, he got involved. So that's an interesting one. Yeah. And so small cap, UK small cap is, is an area you've been adding to. I'm looking again at the income portfolio now. You've also got Lord Adventure in there, which is in both portfolios, I notice. And you've got uh, some healthcare. We were talking to Nick Greenwood last week, as you know, and he was talking about biotech. But you've got some of the, the more mainstream healthcare trusts, including uh, Bellevue Healthcare and something called HBM Healthcare Investments. Now, that's not one I'm greatly familiar with. Is it a UK-listed investment trust or not? It's not, Jonathan. I've got two essentially biotech trusts. They are both listed in Zurich. They are both huge. One is called BB Biotech, which is managed by the same management company as Bellevue Healthcare, that Bellevue Fund Managers, and that's about... I think it's two and a half to three billion Swiss francs in size. And I've also got HBM Healthcare, which is also listed in Zurich, run out of Switzerland and is predominantly a biotech trust. And they've both got good long-term records. I mean, biotech, as Nick Green was saying, is an interesting area just now. It's not really affected by recessions or booms or it, it, it works on different dynamics. It has underperformed massively in 2021 and the first half of this past year, um, such that there's a lot of companies, underlying biotech companies, mainly listed in the United States, which are trading at less than the value of the cash on the balance sheet. Now, that cash is needed because they need to fund all the research and development to come up with the new drugs, to hopefully get approval, and then to go on and, and, and earn revenue. So it's not quite, you would it will go down that cash, but it does show you how much they've underperformed. At the same time, there are certain um, companies coming through with very interesting products. And so I think biotech is an area that you want to have some exposure to because you can get some fantastic returns if you're in the right holdings. There's a lot of merger and acquisition activity going on there as Big Pharma has spotted the fact that a lot of the new ideas, the new products in biotech companies are available quite cheaply. So I think it's one where if you've got a sensibly diversified portfolio, you could do quite well next year. 
just out of interest, I mean, these are listed in Switzerland, in Zurich. So you've got a bit of currency risk in there as well. I mean, uh, well, not always the Swiss franc, but you've got some currency exposure anyway. So why did you pick those rather than a UK-listed uh, trust? Well, I mean, in the growth portfolio, I've got biotech growth. And I am looking at another one, International Biotechnology, which is a London-listed company, which has done quite well also. And it's something actually I'm considering at the moment. It's just that both these trusts have got very good records. They've got a lot of resource. Switzerland does seem to have been its home to a number of pharmaceutical companies. And they've been long-term investors. These trusts have been going for quite a number of years. And I got to meet the managements. I think they know what they're about. And they've got a lot of experience and resource. And so, you know, I don't mind investing in Zurich. They're quite liquid. You're right, there's a bit of currency risk. But when you're invested in the Swiss franc and you're coming out of it from sterling, it tends to be a favourable currency risk because the Swiss franc is extremely strong. And by the way, they both pay dividends from capital. That's why they're in the income portfolio. So it's just for an income fund to have exposure to some biotech assets I think is interesting. And it's got some capital growth prospects as well. Because although it's an income fund, I do try and grow the capital. It's, it's really a total return fund. And these are examples of two trusts which could do quite well from a capital growth perspective as well. And are they actually funds or are they closed-ended vehicles? I mean, no, they're closed-ended vehicles. They're closed-ended investment companies. So most definitely. How do they trade as, in terms of discount and premium? Is there a difference between... What happens in the Swiss market and what happens in the London market? Baby Biotech was a concern because it it sold at such an enormous premium and it offers a 5% dividend yield, which is perhaps one of the reasons for that. I think the premium has narrowed quite a bit over the course of this year. Um, And I did let some go, but I think it was a 19 premium uh, earlier in the year. Um, So that does trade quite well. HBM is more of a traditional discount. I think it's at about a 10 or 15 discount presently. And I think that offers decent value. All I would say is if you look at their websites, you will very quickly get an appreciation of where they're invested and what they're about. And um, I think them and also the two other trusts I, I mentioned in London are definitely of interest presently. In terms then of your kind of international exposure, obviously the last year, as, as you've pointed out, these large companies in the FTSE 100 index, they are able to pay healthy dividends and they, the currency weakness, weakness of the pound has actually helped them because their dividends have come through and uh, been stronger as a result of the currency weakness of sterling most of the year. Remind me what you do about in terms of uh, you know managing the currency risk. Do you actually do any hedging or how do you approach that subject? No, I don't. And I think currency hedging has normally not proven to be very successful. And also in the very long run, I think sterling is probably a weak currency within, you know, looking at the dollar or the euro, the yen, although it has strengthened against them all recently, but not in the long term. And so I am relaxed about that. And let's just let it happen, trying to construct what often very expensive hedges, you can come undone on that. So that's for my own trust, but even for the underlying vehicles I invest in, I'm actually not that keen on them doing foreign currency hedging. And actually one of them that I used to have, private equity trust called Princess Private Equity, came to grief on exactly that in the autumn. Um, It had hedged and apparently the collateral it had to produce 
when the hedge went wrong at the end of September suddenly meant that they couldn't pay the dividend. Yes, I saw that. That was very interesting, yeah. And that was a shock to many investors, I think, many shareholders in that way. Well, it was just, I mean, they're a good private equity house, but the management of the investment company left something to be desired. I sold that and actually reinvested in one called Apex Global Alpha, which I bought, I think, in November. And um, that's actually doing quite well. And, And it's at a big discount. And it's got a decent NAV record, pays 5% of its NAV uh, as a dividend. So I think I'm quite pleased about a- Apex. I think they're a good house. Just uh, interesting enough, we talked a lot about discounts, obviously. But uh, I mean, last week, Nick Greenwood was saying that the underlying discount on his holdings is around 28%. And he had his results out this week, which also uh, went into that in some detail. Is that a figure you calculate on your own portfolio? Would you know what the underlying discount is on your portfolio overall? Overall, it's probably high single figures, and that will have gone out. It probably was much closer than that, or, or closer to NAV, I should say, if you looked a year ago. I mean, I have got some wide discounts. Private equity is one area where discounts appeared. Some specialist property trusts too, like Civitas, but, but other ones too have moved out quite substantially. You've got others like personal assets, capital gearing, and um, BH macro, which trade at par or premiums, which more than offset that. But there's no doubt that the underlying discount on the portfolio has widened um, quite a bit, actually, over the last year. And it's part of the reason why we've lagged the FTSE 100 index has been due to discount widening across the board. And certainly in the alternative sector, which has impacted my income fund since the sort of mini budget in September, which really wasn't a great idea and resulted in bond yields going up sharply. Discount rates of how certain investment trusts value their portfolios also moved upwards quite sharply and even affected the renewable sector. That's wind farms and solar farms, anything to do with property, even healthcare property, mainstream property, and other types of alternative assets which rely on a discount rate to value the underlying portfolios, all sold off quite sharply. Even if the underlying net asset values were were fine, the share prices moved sharply to discounts. I think that's largely happened now. I don't think it's going to happen again. But it did it hit home to you that, that even though the alternative sector, yes, they provide good dividends, which is one of the key reasons for owning them, and the asset values have been fine. The share prices can be volatile from time to time. You have to be aware of that. And that was an example when they sold off sharply in September and October. Indeed. And they've been a very strong, sort of stable until now, sort of source of income for you and for everybody who invests in investment trusts. But do you think we can get back to them trading at power or above? I mean, because that means obviously it stops them issuing new shares and so on. This week we heard there was some more clarification of the windfall energy tax from the government, which didn't have a material impact apparently, but at least um, you know helps to clarify the situation. Do you think we can see them go back to premium? The average discount, I think, on a renewable energy or infrastructure trust is, is, is around 8% now, something like that. And they were trading at premiums. So do you think we'll get back closer to power in the, in the near term? Not in the near term. I think over time, yes, I think you probably will, because most of them will be growing their dividends. And one like, say, Greencoat UK Wind, probably the largest renewables trust, I think it's about three billion in size. Um, And they've um, undertaken to increase their dividend. I think it's either at CPI or RPI, which is very attractive. It yields over five and it's going to be growing. 
And so I think, yes, but I don't think until you get the overall energy prices beginning to show an element of stability. And I don't think we're there yet because all of it's to do with things like what's going on in Ukraine just now. Yes, on a three or four year view, I'm sure they will do. No, not in the next quarter. But I do think they are very solid holds at the moment. And you could even see some capital growth out of them as discounts do, perhaps as things calm down over the course of next year, begin to to tighten up. Because these are trusts that we need to succeed and they're doing the right thing. But at the moment, because of what's going on, particularly with energy prices, they all came up to, to a big discount. So just finally, before we get to the end of this, I just ask you about one other sector, which always attracts people's interest in your views on that. And it's relevant at this point because there's a big issue around the discount rates that they use. And I'm talking about the music royalty trusts, Hypnosis Songs and RHM, Round Hill Music Royalty. They've both been popular because they're sort of unusual and the story seems to be, or was a very interesting one, but they've also sold off to massive discounts. And there's an issue around, they use an 8% discount rate, I think. Some people think it should be more than that. And then there's issues around their debt and so on. I know we've talked about this in the past, but uh, what are your thoughts on that sector? And have you been involved in that one? And uh, would you be? Well, the answer is I am. And I've got hypnosis shares actually in both the income and the growth portfolio. So I'm a believer. <laughs> Very good. I like that. What's <laughs> off the press, which I'm sure your listeners would like, that one of Jonathan's favorite singers, Justin Bieber, is supposedly in the process of selling his portfolio to Hypnosis Capital, which is a joint venture between Blackstone and Hypnosis Songs for $200 million. So Jonathan, when he gets his latest Justin Bieber CD or maybe even vinyl record, it'll now be probably part of Hypnosis. More seriously, I do think they are looking quite attractive. I actually had a visit a couple of weeks ago from the manager of the other um, Royalty Income Trust, which is Roundhill in my office in, in Edinburgh, Josh Grouse. And he, he was very articulate. And actually, there is a lot of growth potential in these trusts. You know, we know what's happening with streaming, performance income, sync income, which is when some of their copyright songs get placed in films, television or advertisements. They get a lot of income from that. And there's a number of other routes which are are interesting. It's not easy to know why the shares are trading where they are. Um, the discount rate that's used to value these song copyrights is 8.5%. At the moment, hypnosis is priced as a discount rate of 12% is actually what that share price is saying, how the, how the portfolio is valued. Um, and I think hypnosis have pretty much addressed the debt issue most of it is now fixed, so they're not going to, you know, be caught with overly high interest payments, which they can't accommodate from their royalty income. But I do think there's still uncertainties, and I think they just need to keep producing results. And if they do, and they've both had results recently, Hypnosis had a, a perfectly decent set of interims, I think you will find that that will begin to show up in the share price. One other important thing. And we had a meeting with the chairman, uh, Columbia Thread Needle, some of my other colleagues who also own shares in different funds in hypnosis with the chairman of the trust just a few days ago, is that there is a vote. I think it's in September as to whether there'll be a continuation of this trust or a big redemption event. And so 
you know, the NAV is supposedly well over 150. The share price is actually up a bit in the last few days. It's gone up to 87, 88p. If that stays the same right through to that vote, which I think the vote will actually take place in June after they come out with their full year results year to the end of May, you could see a lot of people voting to just wind the thing up because there's such a gap between the supposed asset value and the current share price. And that kind of means it falls into the, where am I going to lose on this in the short term? Because the shares may improve for fundamental reasons. And if they don't, then you could vote for a redemption at the end of life of this trust and get back close to asset value. And I don't think it would take that long for that to happen because they're all songwrite copyrights and there's a lot of buying and selling going on of these things globally. So I think hypnosis is in quite an interesting position just now for people to realise, and I definitely not sell them presently. Well, that's a very uh, good note to end on. I mean, I've never been so seriously defamed in a podcast before by being branded as a fan of Justin Bieber. But, you know, I'll, I'll live with that. I'll take that from you, Peter, because you've been such a good guest to have on the podcast. You slipped that in very nicely. So we're just on a final note. Obviously, we're coming up to Christmas and New Year, uh, looking forward to the next year. And I know you, you have a great tradition in Scottish rugby. You'll be looking forward to uh, beating the English again this year, I think, probably, and going on to win the World Cup. But I don't seem able to dent your optimism in any way. So the basic story is, is running through all the things you've been saying is if things are a big discount, there's usually a way out and that will turn out well. And uh, if you're patient enough, those discounts will give you very good returns over time. Would that be your sign-off note for this year? Well, I, I must be honest with you. I have no visibility on the next few months. And actually, it wouldn't surprise me if, if markets did have a bit of a down leg. But I think looking beyond that, and you don't have to look that far beyond it, I think there is quite a lot of interesting value as we've talked about discounts and all the rest of it. And I think, you know, I think it is probably too late to sell. And I think it could be that we have a decent recovery, particularly in UK equities in the second half of next year and trust will benefit. And so, you know, on that note, which is more positive, I mean, that would be my signing off for 2022. Well, that was uh, Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio Trust, which has two share classes, as I mentioned, uh, ticker CPMG and ticker CPMI. And you can find lots of details about them, uh, obviously, on the AIC website or on their own website. I should also mention that Peter is one of the contributors to the uh, forum that I have every year. I poll about uh, half a dozen professional investors in investor trust about what they think has been going on and will happen in the Investment Trust Handbook, which came out uh, this week. And though I say it myself, is um, beginning to sell like hotcakes. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, thank you, everybody who has either bought a copy or downloaded one. Uh, it uh, follows the usual formula, 280 pages or so of uh, articles, data, reflections on what's happened, and uh, some how-to articles as well. Uh, how to uh, use the IOC website, track your income portfolio, for example. That's uh, in this year's edition and uh, lots of interviews with uh, fund managers as well, uh, as well as uh, outside contributors like uh, John Barron and uh, Alex Davis on VCTs. All in the Investor Trust Handbook, which I am uh, quite happily plugging away like I do. So that's it for this week. We will have a podcast next week. It may be a, a rather shorter one. I will be discussing the year and the outlook with uh, Sebastian Lyon, the uh, manager of Personal Assets Trust, and uh, looking forward to uh, another 12 months of this weekly podcast. So thank you for listening and uh, 
happy Christmas and New Year to everyone. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.